Welcome to the ACO Show. On this show, Joe Schankweiler and I got to learn a few things about transgender health. Our guests were Dr. Phil Rogers, who is a family physician at the University of Michigan, including working in their Comprehensive Gender Services program, and Erica Ash, who is a resident assistant at the University of Michigan for Hematology Oncology, and has been through the experience of a gender transition herself as a patient of Dr. Rogers. Erica was willing to share some of her experience with us. And thanks to our producers, Aaron Wang and Francis Bentley. ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, a psychiatrist and a medical director here at Allidade, and we are here today with Erica Ash, who's a resident assistant for hematology and oncology at Michigan Medicine, as well as being a professional background singer, and Dr. Phil Rogers. Uh, Dr. Rogers is a, a family medicine physician at University of Michigan and a former primary care lead for the Comprehensive Gender Services Program at the University of Michigan. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And I'm Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician by background, and I lead adoption and training here at Allidade, and we're really excited to have you both with us today. Thank you. I thought we would start with some basic definitions uh, so everybody would know what we mean when, we, when we're saying certain words. So first, what is a cisgender person? A cisgender person is one whose gender identity is matched to the gender assigned to them at birth. And then what is a trans person? A trans person is, is, transgender is a broad term that tends to encompass a, a spectrum of identities that are not consistent with the gender assigned to an individual at birth. And an intersex person? An intersex person is a, typically refers to a spectrum of conditions where an individual is born with genitalia that have features of both male and female characteristics. Thank you. And the last one I would say is uh, the difference between sex and gender identity. Sex is typically referred to as a biological trait that most commonly is associated with chromosome makeups. So, so uh, Humans born with two X chromosomes are female. Humans born with an X and a Y chromosome are of male sex. There are a variety of chromosomal abnormalities that do not fit into those two categories that can yield other kinds of biological sex, but the vast majority of people fall into that. Gender is something that's more complex and it evolves over time and has uh, components of both biology and also how individuals feel about who they are and how they express themselves, um, either identifying with stereotypically male or female tra traits, combinations of both or neither. Gender characteristics are also heavily informed by culture. They have evolved over time and in different places. Uh, so, so the work uh, that we do as transgender healthcare providers is try to understand all of those uh, characteristics for each of our patients so we can make sure they get the best care possible. How do you encourage uh physicians in training or medical students or anybody clinically uh, 
treating patients in any setting to think about the distinction between sex and gender. And the reason I, I asked that is because I had a, a, a surgical attending when I was a resident who used to, um, he would uh, encourage us to think about gender when talking about patients as people and not sex. He used to say sex is for fruit flies, you know, that it's a, it's a scientific thing that doesn't impact how you actually interact with the patient. And I that always stuck with me. And I, I wonder if you have a, uh, any similar thinking and how you think of the two. I, I mostly like that sort of uh, framework for this because it's really important for us to interact with our patients in the way they see themselves and the way they present themselves to the world. And, and I think that I'll, I'll invite uh, Erica to uh, um, contribute here in a minute but to me that's the that's that's the starting point for any good clinician patient relationship i think we can't ignore biological sex however because there are important things about the way in which biological sex can inform health needs and health risks everything from cancer screening to you know the specific expression of heart disease those kinds of things where we have to i think be conscious of both while understanding that it's really imperative we interact with all of our patients on their own terms erica as a trans woman what are some things you would want healthcare providers to know about your care One of the hardest things for me to deal with first was I didn't have that typical self-hatred of my body, but I also didn't want anyone to acknowledge that it was physically male. So having certain things like a physical or a prostate exam was extremely difficult for me. Even though I didn't have that self-hatred, I also didn't want that acknowledgement that I physically was male. And Dr. Rogers made me feel very comfortable. Um, The amount of respect was off the charts. Um, He assured me that even though I needed these certain things for my physical health, that it did not determine my gender. That was the most important thing for me. Use the word respect there, and I think that's that's really important to to pause on for a second. Can you talk uh, as much as you're comfortable with your other interactions with the medical community uh, and sort of the arc of those interactions? I think many of our listeners um, are clinicians or involved in clinical medicine, and um, would be curious to hear about that uh, your journey within medicine. A few times that I actually did seek medical help. The minute someone sees you naked and they see that you have a penis, even though you're presenting as female, um, really does change the atmosphere. They treat you completely different, like you're somehow a different species, or that there are certain mental defects that they're assuming that you have because you are physically male, but you're telling them that you're female. It wasn't actually until I joined the gender services program that I experienced something different. And unfortunately, those experiences that I had with those past doctors um, shaped my opinion of the medical field. And it wasn't until I was in the situation where I 
desperately needed medical care that I actually saw someone. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the definitions in the DSM. The DSM is the Psychiatric Diagnostic Manual. Um, I had a practice in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and so this was an issue that would land in my office with a lot of frequency. And the definition used to be called gender identity disorder, now it's called gender dysphoria. And the gist of the definition is someone who feels like their their natural sex is not the sex that they were born with and that they have some distress about it. And I have heard people feel like uh, this is pathologizing the way people are or it's uh, putting down or label, labeling trans people. But I know that as a psychiatrist, I was glad for this definition because people were coming into my office and they were distressed about it. And I didn't feel like the definition uh, pathologized them. I wanted to know how to look it up and how to offer help to these people. And we know, of course, that help is either getting them to the right medical care or helping them learn to accept themselves. It doesn't imply or didn't imply to me that there's something wrong with them. It's just a way of figuring out how to help the person who's in front of you because people are distressed about it. Um, so I, ju- I just wonder what your either of your thoughts are on, on, on seeing it in a book like the DSM. For me, it gave me a name for what I was feeling. Uh, growing up in a Southern Baptist family, I had no idea what it was that I was feeling or had a name for it. I just knew that I was different and that I was in the wrong body. So actually seeing it in physical print, there was that moment where I was like, ah, that's it. That's me. That's a powerful description. And I think I share some of your appreciation, Dr. Israel, with having a way to describe this. And I think what I try to do both in my practice and when, when, when I talk about this is say the diagnosis is ne- never about the identity, right? The identity isn't the problem. It is how the other's reactions to emerging identity cause distress, that's the problem. So if I could fast forward to an ideal state where all of us get comfortable with uh, kind of managing each other on our own terms, my hope is that diagnosis would go away. I think there's probably some other reasons why it shouldn't. One other important thing that I deal with my patients every day is when we do together working with them uh, decide that there may be treatments, either medical treatments or surgical treatments or both that may help someone uh, kind of be seen in the world the way they would like to be seen. Um, The way our system currently works, attaching a diagnosis to that is a way to get things like insurance coverage. And it's a way to get things like support for, for helpful services. So I think there's other dimensions to it, but to me the most important one is is to be very clear that we're never pathologizing who someone is, only helping them feel and function as well as they can. You touched on some of the aspects uh, beyond uh, just the communication. So um, if I could take a step back, two things that we think are really important here at Allidade are empowering our patients uh, via our partner practices, uh, but also coordinating care 
So doing things like providing data that give additional insight into uh, referral patterns or emergency room utilization by patients, things like that that empower a primary care provider to then empower their patients with all the information that's out there. And I'm struck by the role of those two things in what you just discussed. So I'd love to hear a bit about how, um, as a leader in the field, and then uh, Erica, as somebody who um, both works in the clinical setting but has also experienced this as a, as a patient firsthand, how important those things are. So empowerment and coordination. So I'll start. I, I think both of those are critically important for our transgender patients as they are for everybody. And I think we want to make sure that we're sort of um, individualizing care and care planning for everybody based upon their needs. So having data about things like, you know, uh, unscheduled contacts with the system, ED and hospitalization rates, having data about, you know, uh, prescription fill rates for medications. Are we seeing barriers to care that we can can uh, um, sort of help overcome to empower individuals to, again, feel and function as well as they can? So I think that's important and needs to be tailored to the needs of every patient. I think the role of care coordination in primary care is rising and has been. Um, at the University of Michigan, we've been working in a patient-centered medical home model since the early 2000s based upon pilot work. And we've, you know, we're now working in a very different way than we did back when I started, but before that time, um, where we're working more in teams. Um, we still identify primary care providers, but we work both in provider teams, but also in broader interdisciplinary teams. And, and one of the the pieces of work that we have undertaken and will continue to is ensuring that we're um, providing all the members of our team with the tools they need to care well for all of our patients, including our trans patients. This is everybody from our clerical staff who greet patients at the time of their visit to our care navigators who are often registered nurses, sometimes social workers. We're expanding their knowledge and skills about our trans patients, both the elements of their care that are specific to gender transition and then the things that are actually important to everybody. Um, so I do think there's there we need to make sure that uh, the elements of our patient's care that are, that, are, that are influenced by their gender identity are included in our routine work of empowerment and care management, and that we don't think about it as something extra or special or on the side, but as just part of the, the sort of care that all of our patients receive and deserve. I always tell people being transgender is probably about 3% of who I am. Um, there are so many other factors that have created Erica. Uh, it is an important part of who I am, but it's not all of who I am. So I tend to prefer that people address the whole as opposed to just this one specific part. I just. I'm a fierce, wonderful black woman who also happens to be transgender. One of the most interesting set of studies on the topic that I've read uh, concern children who are born with ambiguous genitalia, who were then uh, raised 
uh, in a way that was different than their genetic sex. Um, and similarly, uh, infants who had male genitalia that were damaged beyond repairs, uh, damaged beyond repair as an infant. And so well, the doctors essentially converted it into female genitalia mm-hmm. and tried to raise the, what had been born a boy as a girl without ever telling the person. Uh, and in most of those cases, the person ended up um, with the sex that they were born with, not the sex that they looked like and that everybody was telling them that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder what your own experience with that is. You know, what point did you realize this is who I am? And, you know, I wish people would stop trying to raise me in a different way than I feel. Five years old, mm. I was playing with some cousins. And I've always identified more with the women in my family than I did the men. I, I remember at one particular time thinking, why do I have this part of my body when my female cousins don't. And what was wrong with me? Because I was obviously female and I didn't understand why everyone else didn't get it. So then I told my parents. And, you know, him being a Southern Baptist minister and her being the mother of the church, you can imagine just how well that went. And then I didn't speak of it again until I was seven. And exorcisms do not work. <laughs> they tried it three different times. Yeah, the good news is there's no CPT code for that, so <laughs> our, our doctors, our, our doctors aren't, aren't feeling that one, thank goodness. Oh, thank goodness. Dr. Rogers, is that is that a consistent story that you hear? Yes. Uh, you know, the I would say for the vast majority of patients who I see, and I'll be clear, I tend to see patients... Um, after, so in my role with the Comprehensive Gender Services Program, I tend to see patients after they have come to seek services, and they've already started to tell their story. So they're maybe a little bit more confident in their story when they come to me. Um, I actually have now in my primary care practice, so I'm a family doc, um, and I see patients in my primary care practice of all ages. Um, I have had now a small handful of my young patients sort of come through adolescence at some point and identify as transgender. And and that's been an interesting experience for, for me, kind of watching that unfold uh, with uh, those individuals and their families. I would say in general, um, at least the those those uh, young trans patients who I've had to, I, I've had the privilege of working with seem to have a uh, more supportive experience than what Erica described, and frankly, a more supportive experience than most of the patients who I cared for in the gender program who often came to me in middle age, having struggled with this for many, many, many years after adolescence, uh, living in uh, an assigned gender that they just felt in conflict with and had caused m- much damage and led to self-destructive behavior and fractured families. And my hope is that for patients who are able to have their identity supported earlier in life, that they can just live with less distress and live more fully and become all that they can be. Now, I know when women get married, they often report that just 
doing the whole name change thing is a tremendous headache. So I can only even imagine what the process is like for, for gender change. Um, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that for Medicare, you can do it. That Medicare allows you to change your, your gender within the Medicare system. And you know, given that the federal government is not often our most progressive body, I was glad to see that. But what's what's the process been like for you? And as a, as a practical matter, how do you do it? So part of that is I had to go through the court system to actually legally change my name. I had to publish that name change in a local paper before it would actually go through. Um, once that was done, then I had to also change every legal document that had my old name to my new name, including my social security number, my birth certificate, you name it. I can share experiences that other patients have shared with me. You know, one of the challenges with changing name and more importantly, gender in public records is that it is kept in multiple different levels, Yes. right? So. Um, for example, um, when I began my practice, um, I, what what many of my patients relied on was going to quote unquote friendly secretary state offices in our state. So there were known to be some offices where you could go and have this done successfully, and somewhere it would be questioned. Uh, in some instances, if if insisted upon, uh, one would have to go to court. And of course, there would then be, became to be known as friendly judges and unfriendly judges, um, some of whom would require proof of surgery to change genitals in order to change gender marker. That has happened in the not very distant past. So I think we have made progress. Um, one of the big, big uh, uh, sort of um, things that enabled that was starting in early in the first Obama administration. I think one of the first openly trans um, administration officials was an undersecretary of transportation or state, I forget which, who- I believe it was transportation. Uh, transportation, who set up a process whereby passports hmm. could be changed with an affidavit from a treating provider hmm. saying, I am working with patient X to transition to uh, their true gender identity. And with that, you could receive either a temporary or even a permanent passport, a three or a 10 year. And that was a game changer at that point. And that allowed a lot of patients who I work with to then get a legal ID that they could use to go back and actually change their other identification. So, you know, I throw that to say that I think we're making progress and I think there's a there's hopefully um, those give us a you know, kind of guidepost to look to the future and make sure that we're being as supportive as we can for everybody. And for something where there's stigma attached, we, we're never going to have very good prevalence data. Um, but my understanding from what is available is that the rate of, of uh, trans people in the population is somewhere around 0.5 to 1% of the population. So. That works out in America to about 3 million people. Mm -hmm. And yet, I hardly ever hear it come up in general healthcare uh, conversations. That even here at Allidade, I think I can really only recall one conversation, and that was around a quality measure for mammograms where we were trying to figure out um, if a trans man still needed to have a mammogram and um, where that would fall. And we learned medically that the answer is the same as for women, that if you've had a mastectomy, no, and if you you know, if you haven't, then yes. 
but it just it doesn't come up. And I wonder what your thoughts are on why we're not hearing more about it. Is that that in the Medicare population there's even more stigma? So all these people are still you know not not out with their identities. What, what do you make of it? Yeah. So I would say that. We, up until really the last probably four or five years, uh, trans individuals have been invisible mm-hmm. in society, um, largely. And not completely. There have been all kinds of very brave individuals going back decades who showed themselves. But for purposes of things like research, that, that would help us inform the better care for trans individuals. Um, it's really only been in the past half a decade that we've started to get any usable data. And of course, the first thing we've been able to do is what's called descriptive research, which is simply start to understand things like prevalence. Um, there was There have been some large surveys done of the trans community, which are a great start. But we don't, for, for example, know, you know, things like mammography for for patients in transition, either from male to female or female to male. We, we actually don't have good practice. So for my patients who, who have been taking estrogen therapy to help develop female body characteristics or stereotypically female body characteristics like larger breasts, we frankly don't know how often to screen them for breast cancer. We tend to extrapolate what we know from cis women and the work we've done there, but we've we learned a long time ago extrapolating data across genders doesn't get get us anywhere. We ignored women for many, many years in medical research. And it's and it's taken us 30 or 40 years to start catching up. So I think we're, we have the same journey ahead of us for trans individuals, but I think we're starting on it. And I think we all need to advocate for equity in, in research funding. So I can sit in front of Erica and say, I've got evidence-based practice that can let me know what is the best way to care for the parts of you that are influenced by your gender transition, because it's only a part. Mm-hmm. Erica, would you agree with that five-year timeline, five-ish years? I'm just curious. Is there a single, you know, and what do you think that's from, people being uh, rightfully more uh, inclined to discuss these topics as it relates to health and science and, and other areas where it's relevant? I can only speak for myself. As a trans person, especially as a trans person of color, every day I walk outside my door is an act of courage. Unfortunately, when you put yourself out there, you put yourself at risk. Just within the past month, there have been two to three trans women of color in Detroit who were murdered for being just who they were. So... There's not a lot of trans women out there who are seeking medical attention. That might be part of the issue, why we don't have that data, because they're afraid to come out. Erica, you, uh, we listed uh, some of your amazing accomplishments, including being a professional background vocalist. Uh, but what we didn't talk about was uh, you're going back to school uh, to enter the, the clinical field. Is that right? Yes. And so uh, I'm curious, what motivated you to do that? And um, in, in general, you're, you work in healthcare and you've, you've been a patient uh, previously. Um, how... How will your experience inform your time as a clinician? 
My father was diagnosed with end-stage lung cancer and taking care of him, I was able to realize that if I can do that for him, I can do that for other people, especially the LGTB community who don't necessarily have that support system who are on their own. And I wanted to be that support for them. That was the biggest factor and why I chose to go into the medical field. And how about you, Dr. Rogers? What landed you in this particular area of medicine? So when I completed my family medicine training, I had had no specific training in trans health. This was in the mid to late 1990s. I had the good fortune of uh, being at the University of Michigan where the comprehensive gender services program had been started by a colleague of mine several years earlier. That colleague departed the, the, the institution and left an opportunity and frankly a need. And what I was compelled by at that time uh, were the significant disparities in health outcomes that were being experienced by trans patients and just how vulnerable they were when they even felt comfortable coming into our system. I didn't even know at the time how how uh, difficult it was for trans individuals to access. So I, along with a small team, really dove into this and had a lot of learning to do. And I will tell you, the experience over 20 years, we're working with many patients who identify across the spectrum of gender has only reinforced my belief that we need to continue improving the inclusivity of the care that we provide and that gender is as important as every other characteristic that are patients have and understanding their journeys and being able to personalize their care based upon who they are is what we have committed to do. So I've been honored to work with patients like Erica, uh, really educated by my interdisciplinary colleagues in the program. Um, We've been challenged by our trans community to do better by them, and I think rightfully so, and hopefully we will continue all of those effective partnerships going forward. At Allidade, we really feel like we are here day to day trying to change the healthcare system, Um, but thank you both for the reminder that we need to add one more thing to our to-do list. Thank you. Yes, thank you for having us.